What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 182. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the cardboard box kingdom master, Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. You know, I once had a to- I once upon a time had a job where I uh, put my job description down as cardboard technician. So <laughs> I'll um I'll take the cardboard master uh, title. Yep. Thank you very much. A, a long earned and sought after title. Absolutely, absolutely. Our audience will have to forgive me yet again. Unfortunately, as I said last week, um, mm-hmm. Electric Ham Sandwich Studios is on the road again in a couple of weeks. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, the salubrious surrounds of this room, unfortunately, we could uh, we we but saw them passing by. Um, <laughs> just somewhere new next door. Next after that, um, so I got to pack everything up and hit the road again. But yeah. uh, you guys, no one watches the live streams anyway, so who gives a fuck? You're just listening. Oh, I don't know. We might get one or two people who accidentally <laughs> stumble upon it and just suddenly go, "Oh well, it was it was this or death." So, mm. <laughs> and I, I would support that decision personally. Yes, it's you know it's it's, it's fair. I mean, you know, people who listen to our show, they've by by this point, they've probably spent about the equivalent of a soft jail sentence. Sentence. <laughs> uh, well, and you know, considering most of them are Russian bots, uh, you know, uh, life can be short um, these days. So. Mm, <laughs> I'd say that's about 455 hours of this of this show alone, not including the uh, GNT podcast. The previous actually. show, yeah. Which, um, so that's that's enough for anybody for a lifetime, right? Yeah, I think I think that's that's good. Now we have got a packed show for you, as always. Um, we have got our chain movie of the week, which is the classic. Is it still a classic? Luc Besson directed Leon the Professional, starring Jean Reno, Gary Oldman, and Natalie Portman. Our connection from Do the Right Thing last week is Danny Aiello. Um, we are going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, James Gunn's final MCU movie before he um, gets really into high gear of creating the new DC Cinematic Universe. And Travis picked our third and final movie of this week, going back nothing short of 40 years to Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, of course, we've got everyone's highlight, Binge Browse Burn. So we get cracking on, get straight to it, the Leon the Professional, the chain movie of the week. Yes, so this is the 1994 hour and 50 minutes. One of the movie, I think this is arguably the movie that really put Luc Besson on the so like on the Hollywood map more than just the, the French cinema because he had previously done La Femme Nikita, which is a bit of a cult classic and it did spawn a US TV show uh, spin-off with Maggie Q, um, which was not terrible. And there was even a, um, uh, a a TV show version of it, I think, in the mid-90s with Petter Wilson, I think. I remember that one being on TV yeah. late at night here. Yeah, yeah. And for those who might not know Petter Wilson, if you've watched the much maligned League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Steve Norrington movie with Sean Connery, she played Mina Harker in that. 
Um, and we have seen that. We had to watch that for the show, yeah. I think. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Um, it was also kind of the movie that uh, slam dunked Natalie Portman into the cerebral well, mind. This is her de- film debut. Yeah. And, of course, the wonderfully over-the-top, coked-up brain DEA agent that is Gary Oldman. Uh, now, there are a few different cuts of his film, I understand. There's a director's yes. or a European version. There's the more standard cinematic version that came out mm-hmm. in the United States, probably everywhere else in the West. Where and how and which version did you watch? Uh, SBS. SBS, me too. Yes. I um, Just on the side, I don't know if you had the same experience. I had a pretty bad experience watching this via SBS On Demand. I feel like there were pieces of a film I might have been missing but were jettisoned in favour of commercials. Or Yeah, I had that same. It, it reminded me of the lazy edits that you got on terrestrial TV when movies came out. So like, oh, you know what, we'll keep – that just playing and oh yep 15 minutes is in let's just cut to an advert and then suddenly it cuts back and you've missed 15 minutes like two minutes of the film wait what we <laughs> uh, like it kicks get jumping like 40 minutes into the film after the first commercial break it was like 20 minutes into the film and so it was a pretty bad experience um i watched a fair reasonable amount of sbs on demand because it's a good channel and their streaming service is okay apart from the commercials yeah. Um, they were something was not right with this. Uh, yeah. It was almost me. like sort of like they weren't a maybe they weren't able to get a certain they didn't have rights to it the sort of like the most um, universally known version of the movie or something like that. I don't know. I think it's an SBS problem. I think it's just I think it it didn't. I don't. Know. So I'm going to say put that caveat at the front of it, considering I might have missed some pieces of a film Could, somewhere along the way i've watched this before i've right? never seen this film before uh so um not having watched it on dvd or video or at the cinema mm, mm. you know I, I you know i wouldn't know if something important even if it's a mm. five seconds of a line here or there might have been missed or something mm. like that it, it also impacted my enjoyment of a film because it was frustrating mm. having, like literally it would get frozen in the halfway through the commercial break. look if you can't get your fucking commercials right on yeah. your streaming service, but don't put them in, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, and then it would jump. So, but here's the here's the rub. Yes, this film has an eight point five in IMDb. Uh-huh. It's a number thirty five in a top two hundred and fifty movies on IMDb. Uh-huh. Um, as you said, a much loved classic action classic of the nineties. I didn't like this film very much at all. I was mm-hmm. thoroughly confused about exactly what it is that supposedly so amazing about this film and that is putting aside the creepy factor which is you know which is that you know is this approaching michael jackson levels in, in yeah. this film um but quite aside from that we'll talk about the creep factor a little bit later but how did you feel you obviously something you're a fan of it from the way back yes but before we go into that let's give the synopsis so after her father, stepmother, stepsister, and little brother are killed by her father's employers, 12-year-old uh, Matilda, she's also the, the daughter of a drug dealer, uh, takes refuge in the apartment of a professional hitman who, at her request, teaches her the methods of his job so she can take her revenge on the corrupt DEA agent who ru- ruined her life by killing her beloved brother. 
that's pretty much a good good synopsis. It's not. This is not a particularly complex plot. No, it is absolutely not. Um, we are kind of introduced to Leon as almost um, kind of uh, especially because the the conversation that we have with Danny Aiello, who's almost Leon's booking agent. Effect, yeah. Um, the way that he talks about himself, like uh, bullets dance off you and things like that. It's Leon is the guy that you reach out to to get the job done. You're almost a John Wickian kind of character. Kind of, yeah. Without the, without the Kung I don't Fu. think we would have John Wick um, if we didn't have Leon. There's a crossover the world didn't know they needed. Ooh, that would be interesting. It would be interesting. Um, but yeah, so this is this is a movie that I studied at acting school. This is a movie that kind of has some notoriety of being tough um, as, as like a like a hard hard boiled kind of story because it's, it's like everyone comes from a broken place. Like Leon is his depiction by uh, Jean Reno is that he's not entirely fully functional is emotionally emotionally detached would be probably the, the best way to put it but i mean potentially going through to potentially autistic or yeah sim- uh i, I to put it in a crude way simple-minded yeah there's there's almost, almost childlike like a, um, arrested development kind of element to it in some things like the fact that he just drinks milk um and he's very very regimented in his life which are you know some there's there's some some things that you could read into that um it's never overtly said or anything like that because that is not actually important to the story really um Uh, in fact i would argue it's actually essential to the survival of this story but we'll come back to that (laughs) um but yes this is a movie that um, was very popular in the sort of like uh, 90s through to the early 2000s, um, especially getting a resurgence after Natalie Portman hooked up with the Star Wars franchise in 99. Um, and everyone's kind of persistently loved Gary Oldman and his over-the-top everyone line delivery and... He's just, he's being very much 90s Gary Oldman in this movie. I still like it, but like I was afraid of when I chose it and I commented last week about the relationship between Matilda and Leon, it is not aging well. It was, it was never healthy should we say and it's just gotten more and more uncomfortable to watch and there's i've i decided to do a little bit of um research just about kind of arguments for and against it and there's a lot of people that are saying oh this is this is very typical of french cinema in the early 90s which some of the french cinema i've seen yeah there is some weight to that argument but at the same time, that still doesn't necessarily make it appropriate. 
There's an argument. There's an article last week. I, I can't remember exactly where um, from an author who sort of made was asking the right. question of like, how do you appreciate art made by monsters? I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. And, and she was referencing David Bowie in the headline, and also talking about people, you know, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Michael mm-hmm. Jackson. Uh, the reason David Bowie gets lumped into those, and it's up to you whether you feel it's a fair comparison, is that. Apparently, there was a famous uh, story about a, a groupie who said she lost her virginity to him when she was 15 or 16. I uh, think Kate Hudson's character in, in Almost Famous. I, oh, yeah. You know, like professional groupie. Well, like that's probably the wrong mm. way to put it. You know? <laughs> but anyway, uh, someone who was well known for it anyway. And yeah. she wasn't, she didn't, wasn't, from what I understand, it was in her book and she wasn't writing it in a way of, oh, he's a horrible person. It was to me, it was almost in her mind celebrating it but like yeah. obviously do it doesn't really matter she was not in a position to consent to that because she wasn't of age and hence yeah, assuming she's telling the truth that's um pretty questionable behavior from 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 uh from david bowie mm. uh now as i said up to you if you consider that worthy of a of a michael yeah. jackson or a or a um you know a woody allen Roman right. polanski kind of level of yeah. thing um, but I guess the question is the argument, and I don't want to run it because I am obviously a huge David Bowie fan, but like mm. the thing that keeps preparing to my head is go, well, it's the 70s, right? Things were a little bit different back then. Yeah. It doesn't make it okay, and I'm not mm. endorsing the behavior other mm. than to say that it was just it was a different atmosphere for that kind of thing back then. But mm. you keep coming back, slooping it back to my head is going, well, that doesn't make it okay. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it does make you wear something – you kind of got away with or you sort of looked at it and gone, oh, that's harmless, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But yeah. You look back at it now and you're like, mm, no, that was definitely misguided on my behalf. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone else for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight is 2020 and it is permanently changing because, you know, it's sort of like the way that society evolves and changes. We suddenly do look back on things and go, oh. oh. So, I mean, that said, like the it's French, it's okay argument for me doesn't really stack up. Agreed. And what does make this, and just again, we're talking about it, we're talking about the creep factor, mm. is that the actress who played the blonde bimbo, I think was a character name in the film, I think it's the prostitute uh, who is, you know, engaged by the person who um, uh, Leon kills at the start of a film. Yeah, uh, blonde babe. I'm sorry, her name is blonde babe, uh, played by Maywin or Maywin. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, uh, he was a former partner and lover of of Luc Besson, mm. uh, who apparently met her when she was like 13 or something when he was mm. 38. You know, uh, and uh, <laughs> here we go. So according to actress Maywin Lebesco, part of the film is based on her romantic relationship with writer director Luc Besson. Labesco plays the interfering drug dealer's blonde babe in the opening scene. I was engaged to the writer-director at the time the film was made. Labesco mm-hmm. had met Besson when she was 11 years old and fallen in love with him when she was 15. Besson was 32 years old at the time. I believe he actually had a child with her before she was 18. So keep all of this in mind when you see a film about mm-hmm. a very questionable relationship between a young girl mm-hmm. and an older man in this film. And it makes, I did not know this before we saw this film. Neither did it makes I. Me, makes me look at Besson in a very different light 
And if you go through a lot of his work, they have very similar themes. Yeah. You know, the Kita, the film the Kita being about, you know, a young girl, a abused girl who goes on to become, you know, an assassin who, you know, seeking revenge. Uh, uh, you could make an argument the fifth element has similar um, parts as well through to the Lucy film he made with um, Scarlett uh-huh. Johansson. Um, I, 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 Luke Besson's a deeply questionable person yeah, now, I think. Yeah, it's, it's very disappointing to kind of hear that. And say, oh... But there was going going back to this uncomfortable relationship between Matilda and Leon. According to Jean Reno, he decided to play Leon as if he was a little mentally slow and emotionally repressed. He felt this would make audience relax and realize he wasn't someone who would take advantage of a vulnerable young girl. Reno claims that Leon, um, the possibility of a physical relationship is not even conceivable. And as such, during the scene, uh, scenes when uh, such a relationship is discussed, Reno very much allowed Portland to be emotionally in control of the scenes. So I think even when this was being made, there was debate about where the line was going to be drawn and drawn and how it was going to be discussed. So it's a really interesting case to look at for many, many reasons. Um, you would not make this yeah, that relationship in a movie today. Um, you would not. You would not. Um, and I mean, to take the opposite side of his argument, uh, is art less mm. for that? I mean, can I not tell this story? I mean, it's uncomfortable, but should art not make you uncomfortable? I don't mm. know. I'm not I'm just popping it out there. Uh, I had the vibe of when I saw, um, Lolita. There were Lolita kind of vibes to parts yeah, of his film as yeah. well. Uh, and, you know, while uh, the Western version of this kept the relationship between um, the Leon and Matilda, you know, pretty above board, apart from Matilda saying some stuff that made uh-huh. me very uncomfortable. Uh, Leon does not reciprocate uh-huh. in any way. I don't think he does anything that's particularly sexually inappropriate. I was going to say he didn't do anything inappropriate. He takes a how to <laughs> kill people. In some aspects, Maybe that would be considered inappropriate. And maybe that's one of the interesting angles of the story is the fact we walk mm. away from this going, the, we feel that's really inappropriate, but easy, you know, the, the intimate nature of a mm. potential intimate nature of a relationship is inappropriate, which of course it absolutely is. But we kind of ignore the fact that he's teaching you how to kill people and go, yeah, yeah it's fine, but we're really worried about this thing over here when you should be going, aren't both equally inappropriate and horrible yeah. to be, you know, uh, imposing on a, on mm. a young child. Um, but what I think is worse for me and what really made it more, more uncomfortable than this story elements between these two characters was the way Besson, um, I, I, or his cinematographer shot mm-hmm. like, and what her, what she wear, what her, her wardrobe mm-hmm. is now that, that choker she wears all the way through the film is making her somewhat sexualized. <laughs> now they were popular in the nineties. Yeah. So I'll pay that, but. I don't know about the way they are used extensively in this film and the way the camera lingers on her mm. body at points in yeah. time made me very uncomfortable. Now, when you put that together with what we know about Luc Besson and his penchant for underage mm. girls, I can't file this under yeah. French. Um, uh, and that was so 
parts of the film were almost unspoken that were, I think, uglier to me even than the the the, the proposed relationship between these two characters. And, and I, I think, to her credit, I suppose, as a film debut for Natalie Portman, she does an amazing performance for for clearly yeah. what Luc Besson is aiming for. He is aiming to tell us, and she. Mate, she really delivers on that in all fronts. The close-ups of her face as she's like really emotionally trying to connect with Leon, and every every scenario that she's in, she just absolutely goes for it. And it is a phenomenal performance, but that just only further highlights just how uncomfortable it really is. If you can step back from the creep factor right now. I mean, because it's definitely there and you can't ignore it. Mm. And it's definitely going to influence your enjoyment of a film. If you've never seen it like me, if you're seeing it the first time in 20 years, like like, like George might be. Um, I kind of come back to my central thesis that this is not a very good film. It is not very well written. It is not very well acted. It is not very well made. I think it has serious pacing issues. It jumps around a lot. Um, I ah. thought it was super cliche. Oh. Is that a cat? No. What? Sorry. Siri just decided to suddenly start talking to me for some reason. Well, you got to get decent conversation somewhere. Um, <laughs> we were talking about bots and she started listening. <laughs> we're always watching. Honestly, I don't know if this is a great film. Like it's, I don't know. Maybe it was great in the 90s. It certainly hasn't aged well for me. Um, I talk Gary Oldman, you know, in... Uh, famously untouchable and you know, mm -hmm. the over top performances. Like I always think of him as uh, his character from the fifth mm -hmm. element. And I really enjoyed him in that. And I think the over the top elements kind of worked better in that film than it did in this one. Like he was mm -hmm. chewing the fucking scenery. Mm -hmm. Like he was, I mean, I haven't seen overacting like that in a long, long time. It was I like very, the quiet moments. <laughs> it was very, very distractingly overacting in this film. And like, yes, the scene where everyone was kind of cool. I'm like, oh, that's what that reference is. Yeah. Um, I've seen that parody so many times. <laughs> um, but I found it was really distractingly over the top. Um, you know, the, end, the film it kind of reminded me of, at least for the first third, was something on the lines of natural porn killers because it was so grimy and it made me feel dirty just watching it these people um but i just, i i'm at a loss what is so great about this film i remember really enjoying it and i don't enjoy it as much as i did it has not aged well overall but i still think some of the core tenets are still strong with it like the action sequences particularly the end sequence of it's almost a reverse of like um the raid and that closeness and that that close-up action uh, breaking in somewhere this is the opposite side of that where someone's just defending and it he does it really well and it's it's very simply shot it's not trying to do anything particularly over the top it feels like it's done on a budget and maybe that's one of the reasons why i remember it fondly is i was watching this 
studying this when I was trying to make movies like this. And it's like, this looks like it was made on a low budget and you can make action look cool on a low budget. And there's so like looking back at it now, there's so like moments where there's so like uh, first person POV camera shots. And it's like, it adds a little element of kind of a in your face attitude to, to those action sequences. And, the close-ups of the, <laughs> the fucking mini missile grenade thing as it kind of shoots through the thing just before Leon goes stupidly. Why? Why does he do? Why does he scream like a monkey? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But there's like an, an energy to it a lot. And but there's also the flip side, and it's almost a tale of two. There's because it, it starts off very somber and simple of you you see Leon living this very isolated lonely life and it's like okay is this gonna be about him developing kind of attachment to the outer world beyond this world that he is currently the master of in a way and the the, the archway that leads him to this greener pastures is this Matilda character. And that's kind of the story, but not really. And it ends up, you, you bring in Gary Oldman and <laughs> suddenly it's almost a parody and an over-the-top kind of absurdist. This is almost like a comic book movie before comic book movies were a thing. Gary Oldman's in another film. Yeah. <laughs> somebody tell him what this film was about and what the rest of the actors were doing because he wasn't doing the same thing. Um well, this was during a time when he was on a lot of drugs. Oh. So he may not have been aware of what movie he was in. <laughs> There's every, every chance here. And that would explain very nicely why he was so over the top. Yeah. Um, it's very personish. I mean, yeah. he's always had a way with action. But mm -hmm. I think that works better in a film like, again, The Fifth Element, where it's fantastical. Uh, mm. You're not supposed to. I feel like I'm seeing it's really, as you sort of said, it tries to look gritty and grounded. It had a $16 million budget. Mm. That's not a cheap film in 1994, yeah. you know. Um, so yeah. that and this is his first Hollywood film, by the way. So yeah. not your original point about this is why, what it made him famous. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got this grounded, gritty characters and drama with his mm. wacky, over-the-top character in terms of Oliver Stone with this, you know, uh, ridiculous action. And, and, Putting it all together is a difficult task. John Wicks mm. pulled it off to a degree, um, but and then the character is getting not as over the top as Gary Oldman's uh, Stansfield. In what John Wick? No, well, no. not really. But he's heavily stylized. I mean, it, but you and I talked a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, about how mm. the really wacky, over the top, you know, fight scenes in John Wick are getting a bit much for us. Everybody else is. Suspending disbelief, but a lot of us out here are going, Come on, how many balconies can he be thrown off and just walk away? Why is it all the cars in France are bouncy? <laughs> you know, like, um, even John Wick can't really, as beloved as that series is, can't keep pulling it off. I think it's getting less and less, but this film just didn't get that balance right. It felt all over the shop, it felt messy. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm seeing. Is it supposed to be a parody? Is it supposed to be over the top? Um, mm. and I just thought it kind of dragged in the end for me. 
Uh, I I found my and you know I think the main problem with it for me is that I, it it had expectations up here. When you mm. have a film with an eight point five top forty of IMDb two fifty, mm. yeah, one of the great action films of all time. Apparently, if you yeah. listen to people talk, and you sit there and go, oh, okay, well, my expectations are significantly higher than they were for Piranha three D or Monkey Bone for that matter. You know, um, <laughs> it's it, you know Monkey Bone. <laughs> Was okay because it, it was it wasn't awful awful I mean it was just eh kind of a mess but you know like I'm uh, expecting awful awful for that film but this one I'm like I'm expecting nigh perfection for an eight point five and I, I I was just at a loss about what was so incredible and again ignoring the ick creepy factor uh, I just thought it's a bit dull and maybe maybe it's just because it maybe it's the Godfather effect you know everything this film did well has now been done to death. But Michelle made an interesting observation. Mm. But this is kind of trying to out Tarantino Tarantino uh, a little. And he was obviously the king of stylized violence in the 90s. Mm. This is two years after Reservoir Dogs came out. A very mm -hmm. different kind of film, but the highly stylized violence, I can see that argument. And uh, what, you know, what Tarantino does well, at least in his 90s films, was that wonderful dialogue between these characters yeah uh, which kept it feeling grounded and real and entertaining and then mm. you had the crazy wacky you know dancing to steal his wheel cutting people's <laughs> ear off part luke Besson is not quentin tarantino no he is not no um it's a shame when we go back to movies that we held so highly at some point and really see the faults and the flaws and things like that but I still overall like this movie. I've got issues with the relationship of Matilda and Leon, as I've talked about, but I do quite like the the stylistic look of it. I mean, on a cinematography level, take away the creep factor. It looks cool, like the angles and the close-ups with the, you know, the, this like, oh, yeah, the, the gun is right there in the screen and things like that. It looks cool, and particularly when you look at stills from it, they they are sorts of things where you could just go, all right, I like that shot. I'm going to put that as a picture up on my wall. It's almost Zack Snydery in that regard. As like, yeah, he knows how to use the camera and use the screen to to really get highlight something great as a, as a moment strung together as a story. It's a very thin story, and it's. It's a shame because I think that they, if they if they remade Leon today without the creep factor and just kind of almost put it as this great assassin versus a corrupt cop kind of ultimately butting heads because of something, they could do that. But I feel like many movies have already basically done that. So I think this has inspired a lot of other movies since that have gone on to do bigger better things um i think you're right i mean as you said earlier i don't think john wick exists without this film um this is the film that made uh fifth element possible which i think is still lucas on's best film um right. uh but i i said i maybe you had to see it in the 90s it just it yeah. really felt dated and and kind of dull i mean i just kind of expected so much more of this and and i you know, if you're listening at home or watching on the YouTubes or the Twitches, you know, like 
tell, and you're sitting here going, what the fuck is he talking about? This is an incredible film. I'd love to hear some more from people about what you love about this film. it recently with great, great thoughts. Yeah, I want to hear. Wanna hear. In fact, there was a, a, a interesting, I watched this on Sunday, and then mm. later that afternoon, later that night, I noticed a conversation in r slash movies on Reddit about this very film. Um, <laughs> and We are and such the, trendsetters. The, um, the breadth of, of opinion is interesting, but the conversation still says people going, I still love this film. I still think it's a classic. Mm. And and I just sort of found myself going, sorry, I, I missed that whole thing. I just don't understand what's so great about it. But I would love to hear from people who think it's great to explain to me what I got wrong and what I missed here. Mm. Oh, now is the keys are yours, sir. I am going to go somewhere interesting. I had a lot of choices. Uh, mm. here, it's a lot of excess and I'm not taking an obvious one. Uh, I would like to give a, a shout out to uh, one of the options I considered because uh, it was a, it was such a close call this afternoon. Uh, mm. I thought about following um, Don Creech, who plays Second Stansfield Man, okay. a film uh, from 1996 called Flirting with Disaster, uh, which was uh, David O. Russell's second feature film. Yeah. Um, and it sounds interesting. I've actually procured a copy because I might still watch it anyway. Ben Stiller um, and David O. Russell. Um, and I thought, what are you? That'd be interesting. David O. Russell, where did he come from? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've, I've come down on the side of following Ellen Green, who plays Matilda's mother. So I'm going with the ob- unobvious choices here. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And, and uh, she was in a film in 1988 directed by Oliver Stone called Talk Radio. Uh, which sounded very interesting to me. Little Shop of Horrors. No, no. New musicals, no. Um, but talk radio, I, I did a little bit of research on it this afternoon, and some consider it oh, potentially Oliver Stone's best film. Oh. Um, now, that's massively high praise from a director who yeah. is extremely highly respected. And I thought oh, it would be keeping with, like, you know, there's lots of, I could have gone to the fifth element. You know, I considered going to the Phantom Menace just to be a shit. Um, you know, uh, would, we, if if we ever somehow get on Phantom Menace, I am only following on the actor of Jar Jar Binks. I <laughs> do not care. That's it. Uh, I could have followed Michael Bartoluco, who was in Raging Bull. He was also, and this you don't know how close you came to getting so desperately seeking Susan because he's in that as well. Uh, <laughs> but no, I have <laughs> tried to be. Go. This sounds like a really interesting film, uh, directed by one of the great directors of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I haven't seen it. I'm guessing you haven't seen Ooh, it. No, I haven't. Um, I should be able to procure a copy cool. if I, if for whatever reason I am unable to procure a copy, we will go with flooding with disaster. Okay. Um, but I think I have my hands on a copy of uh, Talk Radio, so. Um, we will be talking about that. And you got a few exits here, uh, starring Eric Bogosian, John Cena Gillies, a bunch of stuff, and of course Alec Ball with Michael Wincott. You can't make that work. Oh, I've I've got a, got a few options already in my mind. And I think we've done Oliver Stone. I think we used him once before, if I'm not mistaken. But um, we'd have to go back and check the books. I think we, I think we uh, used him for W. Oh no, that was uh, yeah. X. I think the connection. Well, we can look yeah. it up, but, and because you might, that'll be another easy one for you if you want to use yeah, yeah, yeah. Oliver Stone. But um, 
They said, I will procure a copy of Talk Radio uh-huh. for us next week if I can. Or, worst case scenario, if they fit into Shan, we will go and see the David O. Russell film. But you know, awesome. this is what you have to put up with when you're talking about obscure shit that just doesn't <laughs> seem to have a lot of sources in this country. <laughs> you know, it's Vail Blockbuster, you know, it was good for something after all. There you go. <laughs> All right, shall we talk about uh, the big movie release of the week? Yes, because no one else, you would have heard nothing about this film. Little indie film <laughs> dropped last yep. week. Uh, Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Now, I want to ask a question first. Up, You sent me a message after seeing it uh, about the volume. Did you have volume issues in your theatre? Yeah, it was so damn loud. It was obnoxiously loud. It was foul. Me and Chris were both just sitting there with our ears plugged, just looking at it, and we could still hear everything perfectly. It was wow. Where, where did you now. see it? We went to uh, Village Cinemas in Platy Valley. And, yeah, it was just obnoxiously loud. I felt really bad for Crystal because I looked over and she was just plugging her ears. It just looked like she was in pain. It was so loud. That sucks. It just ruined your experience. Yeah. Um... Did you talk to them afterwards? Or? No, no. It was a late night uh, movie, and we just wanted to All right, anyway. Yeah. Fair enough. But um, and it's it's a particularly tough one because so much music in this, and so much great music in this. But when it's just blaring out at you, it it did cause an effect of mm, I'm not enjoying this. I think I'll probably enjoy this more in the, at home when I can. I. <laughs> I um I, I went to a tour of Battle of the Bands many years ago, and they could have been the greatest bands in the history of the world, but they was had everything turned up to eleven, mm. and like the, the venue literally sold out of the earplugs. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't matter how good something is if it's too loud, it hurts your ears, yeah. and that's just too much. Anyway, mm. for those who are unfamiliar, it's the third Guardians of the Galaxy film, the latest in the MCU saga. Mm. Still reeling from the loss of Gamora, Peter Quill rallies his team to defend the universe and one of their own, a mission that could mean the end of the Guardians, if not successful. Mm. Uh, we're back with the usual cast, mm. as always. The big addition to the cast this time is the guy who plays Golden Boy, whose name's not popular, uh, Will Poulter. Yeah. Will Poulter plays Adam Warlock, who as a character I am not familiar with in the uh, Marvel canon. But I'm loosely, and he was teased at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, um, but we did not see him because apparently he is extraordinarily powerful in the in the pantheon of Marvel heroes, and apparently he kind of rivals Thanos in a similar way to the way that Captain Marvel was kind of sidelined for a lot of uh, Infinity War and Endgame because it's like, oh, she can probably just kill him. <laughs> That's why he... And also, I think that was because no, nobody liked the film. So, mm. um, <laughs> not one. so if she was one of the, it was one of the less popular uh, yeah. films. And so um, uh, I think they just handing... The, the task of killing Thanos over to a character we just met yeah. was probably a bit cheap. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, same as always, same gang. Yeah. Uh, we film starts with the gang hanging out on their newly acquired planetoid, Nowhere, Nowhere. which we met in the uh, ill-fated um, Christmas special. Less said about that, the better. I think we were. they went to Nowhere 
before as well in another one of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Maybe right yeah. like it's been a, it was been a while since the last one came out, right? Was it 2015, 16? Yeah. 2017. You know, um, so it's six years now. Yeah, I mean um, one of the reasons why this took so long is because James Gunn was famously fired from it because of some tweets. And then And then there was that whole you know pandemic in the middle yeah. that probably slowed things. Um <laughs> that's another so window. Had, we don't talk about it anymore. Uh Quill is still dealing with the fact that Gamora that the Gamora in this film is not the Gamora we knew no. from pre-Endgame. This is a Gamora from a different timeline who doesn't know has no memory of her relationship mm-hmm. with Peter or her time with the Guardians. Peter is taken to drinking, mm. to dealing with his grief for that. Everyone's a bit down and a bit, um, a bit, uh, a bit depressed mm. when Golden Boy, yeah. Adam Warlock, turns up out of fucking nowhere and starts wrecking their shit yeah. with a particular uh, aim to reclaim, reclaim, shall we say, hurting and reclaiming Rocket before being stabbed by uh, Nebula, yes. which is kind of cool, um, and. Rocket is uh, critically injured mm-hmm. uh, to say they are unable to save him because they discover that his heart, I think, has a kill switch installed, yes. uh, which will which will explode if they try and uh, try and uh, operate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they need to uh, find the person, find the thing to get the thing to do the other thing to get the thing they need to save mm-hmm. the thing. Basically, a giant fetch quest. Yep. Um, they need to track down. The manufacturer of the kill switch to get the code mm. to turn it off, and in doing so, they encounter the uh, the high evolutionary, the high evolutionary, uh, one of their better villains of late, I think. Uh, I personally. agree, and um, played by Chukwudi Ibuchi. I'm probably pronouncing it badly. You would probably recognize him. He was in Peacemaker. Oh yes, he was. He was be like the handler of yeah. the, of Peacemaker's handler in yeah that, in uh, right. in peace. Um, apparently, he he shot his um he shot his uh, audition for this on a set of <laughs> Peacemaker, which is all very you know, incestuous, considering James Gunn came up with that as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> and. Uh, Shit happens from there as they go from one place mm. to the next place to get the thing to do the thing to get the other thing to say the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what did what was your impressions of Guardians? Um, I as as has honestly been the the crux of every single Guardians of the Galaxy. Rocket is the emotional core of this movie. Um, and he is the kind of the run through of the whole thing, even though they desperately do their best to try and keep Peter Quill in the center of the frame. Every scene that Rocket has been in, he has generally stolen it. Um, it's a beautiful look back into the history of Rocket and the CGI works really well for young Rocket for his for uh, encaptured um, associates, Teeths, Lila uh, and Floor. And their story is emotional and beautiful. And this is not a comfortable movie to watch if you love animals and hate animal cruelty. Because I would go so far as to say this is not a, this is the darkest yeah. 
uh, I think uh, a Marvel a lot film of, to kind date. Of body horror to this. As well. That body horror, the, the goriest, potentially the scariest. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I didn't scared, but you know, I think of if you know, I think this has a similar rating to um, a PG thirteen rating, which I think is what Ant Man um, mm. Quantum Mania had. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and this is this is a significantly creepier, scarier film yeah. for young kids than um than that one was um so mm. if you have young children and they're like oh i want to go see this be exceedingly careful some of the monsters and creatures in it mm-hmm. are really off-puttingly scary i was sort of thinking gr- this is james james gunn pulling back on his original horror yeah you know uh sweet spot which he was famous for before mm-hmm. he became a superhero director mm. um and as you sort of said the the, it's, the animal cruelty is simulated they're not real animals yep but it's you wouldn't know that especially as a younger child yeah yeah um and th- to partner with that Chukwidi does a really good job of making the high evolutionary horrible he's just mentally twisted and cruel and manipulative and just vile in every sense of it. There's just the the look of kind of like the skin being pulled back until the reveal later on, which I won't spoil for anyone. Um, The way that he treats everyone around him, that his, as the story progresses, his kind of descent into mad Caesar kind of elementary sort of ideology. It's, grotesque and he, he does a really good job of just a classic villain that no 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 unlike killmonger where he has a really good damn point but he's the bad guy it's like no he's a bad guy and you're allowed to absolutely hate him we are not he is not a redeemable bad guy he's not thanos where you go hang on yeah He's coming from. You know, he's, he's actually just. A, he's just pure bad, which is fine. He's, They're not the not the kind of villain that Marvel's pulled off to. And it's quite too refreshing considering the the popularity, shall we say, of trying to make relatable bad guys. It's like, yep, that is absolutely the point. Everyone is the hero of their own story. Very good, but every now and then, it's nice just to have someone that you hate. For example, perfect example of a bad guy that everyone loves to hate. Alan Rickman from Prince of Thieves. This is just horrible. Call off Christmas. <laughs> um, exactly. Oh, I am. Um, I think that this film has some strong points. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I read somewhere, and I th- I really actually agree with this. There's an 89 minute masterpiece stuck inside a 150 minute film. Yeah. Uh, it is way, way, way too long. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know I say that all the time um, with my with my reviews of things. I always say things are too long. Yep. But this is two hours and thirty uh-huh. minutes is way too long. It has the it has Return of the King ending syndrome. Yep. Um, and it ends about five times. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm exaggerating here. It, it, it ends a lot. Um, and it needed to get to the fucking point way faster. <laughs> it's incredibly bl- so many ideas are so bloated. Uh-huh. The heist sequence was entirely unnecessary. Like, I love Nathan Fillion. He is an entertaining mm. actor. But they spend so much time with around the, the whole scenario around his characters. Like, no, just cut it all out, please. You don't 
I would be very sad to have cut him out because he was one of the highlights for me because I too love that. Yeah, he, was, he was enjoyable, but it's like, mm, it's not really necessary. I think it's probably giant parts of this were, were not necessary. Huh? Um, you really need to pick a lane. Um, I don't know what part Adam Warlock's going to play in the future. I mean, it's I mean, spoiler alert here. It's not a massive spoiler, but they, there was a hint in the final credits that we will see Star-Lord return. Mm-hmm. But I think we've seen the last of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I uh, don't well, think... at least this lineup of the Guardians of the Galaxy, there are... Yeah, the, the OG Guardians are done, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, James Gunn is done, yeah. obviously, with Marvel. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anybody else would be game to pick up, you know, the OG crew. I don't think the OG crew would work with anybody else. Batista has said that he's done, he's retired Drax as well. Zoe Zabana has said that she doesn't want to do Gamora anymore. So it's like, okay, some, that, that's, that's kind of a big chunk of the crew. Which is, which I'm fine with, really fine. Uh, You know, like three and out, and they're they're three pretty decent films. And I'm I'm saying this here, like my criticism of being too long included it's way too long. It's it's still the best thing that Marvel's done since um, Spider Man No Way Home. Yep. And that's not saying very much because it's been the kind of a shit show mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, it is still a pretty decent trilogy for the most mm-hmm. part. Uh, what I think where it falls down is okay. Out of Warlock, supposed to, he comes in looking like a serious badass at the start of a film. He looks ridiculous, yep. but you quickly take him fucking seriously because he wrecks their shit. Yeah. And then he basically does nothing for the rest of the film, but be the butter jokes. Yeah. And I, what, hang on, what, what is he supposed to be? Yeah. Is he? A, is he? I mean, it's insinuated, you know, at the end, what his role might be in the future. But you're like, uh, they really didn't kind of take full advantage of this new character, who I, I sort of taken to be, again, like a very powerful, badass new character, and they just kind of pissed it against the wall mm. because he had so many other ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned the music before. Mm-hmm. Like, Michelle went over about halfway through the film to me and said they spent the entire budget on on the soundtrack. And I'm like, fuck yeah, there's so much music in this. And, like, all of it's good. I love James Gunn's taste. Yeah. But it's actually quite intrusive at points in the film. Absolutely. And you're like, you're like, do we really need another pop song here or another famous song? Like, I don't – other than it being, like, a cool sequence of slowly walking across the screen. I'm like, like the yes, it looks cool and it sounds cool, and I love this song. But yeah, like, uh, we've had this happen a few times now already, and it's just getting a bit strange. Yeah, yeah. As someone who made a short film where I had literally music in every scene, it was either source or over the top um, as as soundtrack. Oh boy, that that was 15 minutes, and that was too much. And I looked at this and it's like. It's, they haven't has every scene had music over it i think it has this is a great soundtrack but do the movie get on in in the earlier films i think that the the music served the film yeah you think of like him playing his walkman Mm. was kind of a big part of of quill staying in touch with his humanity Mm. and his childhood and where he came from in the first film in particular Mm -hmm. um and you have the cassette tapes and stuff like that. Now he's moved on to a Zoom, which I, mean, I do understand is a joke. Yeah. Um, you know, if anywhere it could have been funny, it could have been if it was an I River. Um, <laughs> but you know, like it's like it's now it's just like it's there because that's what we do in Guardians films. Yeah. It's not there to serve the story in the same way the songs were once it's upon a time. Part of the formula. 
Uh, the other part of the thing, I, the film I really didn't appreciate was, and you mentioned it was an emotional film, is if there was an emotional uh, manipulation technique that James Gunn didn't use in this film, I can't think of it. <laughs> because I felt like every five minutes I was being, you know, having, you know, being manipulated. Oh, look at that. Isn't that fucking sad? Look at that. That's pretty fucking shit. <laughs> I'm torturing animals now. Are you feeling something inside yet? <laughs> you dead motherfucker, feel something. <laughs> um, you know, like, that's kind of what I felt bombarded by this, you know, and I'm like, no, uh, this is actually having the opposite effect on me. I am feeling very manipulated now by this film. Mm. And that I kind of shut down to what's going on in this film. It, it felt like, a video game. Um, like, I don't know, you play a video, you've played enough games to know there's a, there's a, there's a oh, you know, you've got to uh, escort this person. They might die. You escort them back to the other place. And you're like, well, I've got this other side quest to do first. Mm. They're, not, they're not dying before I pick them up and start carrying them back to base because the game needs them to be alive mm. in order for me to pick them up and carry them back to the base. So there's no chance of them dying before I start that quest, mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There are no stakes in this film. No one's dying. So yeah. Rocket's certainly not fucking dying. I'm certain a Rocket's not dying. They do not have the balls to kill off Rocket. <laughs> so at no point was I actually emotionally invested in, oh, he might die. Have I got to save Rocket? Like, you know, it, he's, he's going to survive because he needs to survive because the film needs him to survive. <laughs> uh, and it felt like a video gamey to me in the sense that I had no point ever worried about any of his characters because... Marvel has built this world where there are no stakes. They're not going to die. And even if they do, we can bring them back later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the characters in the MCU that have died, died. Well, you've got Black Widow. You've got one version of Gamora, but she's back. So that doesn't... Loki a few times. Loki a few times, <laughs> but he's back. <laughs> Very much so. Um, you've got... Half the Avengers... But then they came back. It's okay. Yes. Um, permanent deaths. You've got Killmonger. Kill. Mm, well, I mean, he's still kind of. He's, he's still made. He's sort of? he's still in there, sort of. He's in the what, um, the what if series. Um. So it's like okay, death doesn't really mean much. Yondu, Yondu, but even he made a cameo in this yep. film. Yep. Spoiler. Yep. They they Sorry, don't. But he wasn't important. Want you to forget anyone. It's like okay, how. They're shooting themselves in the foot because they are very much at a point where, like, Chris Evans is done as Captain America. They've passed, literally passed that mantle on to Anthony Mackie. Um, Tony Stark, he's dead. And Robert Downey Jr. isn't coming back at any time soon to do that. Um I feel like they're probably going to not do anything with Thor for a while because there's a, a movie with franchise fatigue and just poor results from the from the most recent one, frankly. All of the original ones, they um, haven't really kind of fully invested in the next people because they keep on reminding us about the people that were before. It's like, yeah, you did a really good job with them. Why are you doing a bad job with these guys? Uh, there was a point in time in this film where I, a particular character, one of them, would look like mm. they're in trouble. And I was like, going, ooh, was I wrong here? Are they actually going to do it? Are they going to kill mm. off somebody in the core crew who maybe doesn't mm -hmm. want to come back? Um, yeah. And then they didn't. 
And because you're like, of course, you're like, yeah, of course they didn't. I'm like, man, what a pair of balls on James Gunn killing that character off, you know, killing off one of his main <laughs> crew. Like, stakes, man. Like, maybe we might actually be learning here, Marvel, and actually have something on the line here or whatever. No, no, they didn't. And the, the, um, the fact that they, they basically nullified any possibility of death in this movie by having the med packs that are like genuine miracles of science. They can snap broken bones back together in like that, like a snap of the fingers. And they seem to be able to cure anything for anything. And it's like, okay, so you've got a ready supply of this. And there's so many bits where it's, they force you to feel something like um, what happens with Peter. Peter towards the end is like, wait a minute. There was an, a genuinely emotional moment in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 where Yondu puts the the spacewalky doohickey over Peter. Why doesn't Peter still have that? He had a helmet that could disappear into his thing. And there was a, something that I saw briefly about why Peter Quill doesn't have the helmet because it wouldn't have made the fight sequences in the corridors as good. It's like, his helmet disappeared into his collar. It's a, it's a push of a button. You're doing this purposely. It's also, think. can we remember, do we remember the rocket boots from the first film? They would have been handy oh, geez, in this yep. film as well. Yep. Um, so that's, those are the things that mm. annoyed me about this. And all of those things added to that runtime, which needed to be cut half mm -hmm. an hour out of this. Um, the, you mentioned one of the cool parts of the corridor mm -hmm. fight scene was one of the better ones in the Marvel Universe of late. You know, it kind of reminded me of Serenity. Yeah. By he who shall not... Remember the famous scene in Serenity? Those of you who have seen Serenity, where Summer Glau um, says, yeah, my turn. You know the one. Uh -huh. You know the scene. And just goes into that corridor of what was it? Reavers, I think it was in that film? Ravage. I can't remember. No, no, Reavers. Yeah, Reavers. 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 And just fucking... In one of the more kick-ass fight scenes you will ever see made by a horrible <laughs> human being. Uh, uh, absolutely just, just owns this room full of, you know, deadly killers. And that kind of momentarily reminded me a little yes. bit of Serenity, which isn't necessarily a good thing these days, but not necessarily a bad thing either. Um, most of, I like to fit mm -hmm. the humour. I've heard some people complain it's too quippy, too many gags, and I'm like, it's Marvel. It's Guardians. It's, they're yeah. always doing quippy and gags. And I think so, the time for uh, for the quips and things like that, particularly the kind of snarky nature between Mantis, Drax, and Nebula, I think it works and informed on their relationship that they have been together for a while now, and they are kind of run ragged at this point emotionally and physically, and they're snapping at each other like a like a family would in a in a, an American sitcom. <laughs> I, I and I like the evolution of uh, Nebula to where yeah. she is now. Um, it, it's actually been done quite mm. subtly and skillfully. Um, and you know, I don't think maybe she gets the credit that you know, uh, Karen Gillan doesn't necessarily get the credit that she is due. Um, so yeah, well done there. Um, I like Cosmos, the relationship between Cosmos, um, and I can't remember, Sean yeah. Gunn's character. Um, I, I thought they were entertaining with two. Just, I won't spoil it, but you know the one, um, Craglin. And I know some people get pissy because obviously he used to direct yeah. his brother. Um, but 
uh, I think he works for me um, as a character. So I like yeah. that quite a bit. Um, I also, to call out some performances, Dave Bautista as Drax is still great. Um, his kind of the this, this subtle little elements of evolution to his character, which must be really damn hard for a character that comes from a place where everything is literal. It's hard to bring evolution into that because he's supposed to take everything literally. The, the, and he, he just does well. And the, the line of, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been um, Mantis saying that he was not supposed to be the destroyer, but the father. So like that did nicely kind of pull all of his character arc over the last three movies together and was kind of true to the way that his character needed to be in this movie, shall we say. And it was, it was deftly done. Dave Bautista continues to actually deliver good, strong performances. Um, I actually found that line incredibly cheesy. You're a cold, heartless bastard. Well, I am a cold, heartless bastard, but by that point in time, this is whatever the danger I think of a film just going so hard on the emotional heartstrings and pulling mm. so manipulative throughout its runtime. When you get to the actual part, you want people to feel something about uh, the, uh, the, the big hug at the mm. end. Um, and the, oh, the dance off between, or the dancing between Rocket and Groot. Oh God! Kind of Being thing of the Guardians of the Galaxy, a little bit, but that was a joke. It was a joke in the first yeah, one. Will dancing to off save against the universe, um, and then there's it's like in number two, then they have the him and Gamora have a little bit of a dance, and it's it's always been there. That was over the top. That was borderline. Wait a minute. Is this this generation's Ewok celebration after the end of the war? <laughs> I know I did find myself going, yes, I've used dance before and your know, music. And I know James Gunn loves dance. I think of as the opening mm. sequence to Peacemaker yeah. again. Like that dance is actually really yeah. fucking great. Um, but it yeah. just didn't work here for me. It was way it, yeah. too cheesy. Too much. Then um, the after credits, the after credits scene yeah. sucked. Um, but the last good thing I'll say about this though is for a film in the MCU that basically ignores the rest of and the that's MCU. That's exactly what I was just about to say. The fact that this is a standalone movie, essentially. It's like, oh my goodness, you've remembered how to make those. And like, there's no reference to the multiverse uh -huh. or any uh -huh. of the other bullshit, which can only be a good thing because they have been stinking it up uh, of late um, after Endgame. We all knew it was going to go downhill after Endgame. You can't live up to that standard uh -huh. all the time, but they have by any objective standard they have yep. not been good um in phase five or six so far um and to have a film starring beloved characters uh it doesn't have to have references and easter eggs referencing the yep. rest of what's going on in in the films it was yeah it was really nice absolutely agree um, I still think James Gunn um, is a great director. I, I maybe I need time. Maybe it is time for me to start putting on the fanboy hat for James Gunn. Um, it's a, that I, I will remind you of, of the Christmas special. Look, I hated the Christmas special, but everyone exactly. gets one. Exactly, uh, it's okay. So, um, and uh, you know, it it had it could have been very funny, but it wasn't. Just fucked it up. So um, I still think he's one of the most interesting and talented. And entertaining mm. directors 
that the MCU has tolerated. So the other people who directed mm. trilogies have been, um, of course, the John Watts. He did the Spider-Man. John Watts ones. has done the Spider-Man ones um, for. <sighs> There's not been a single director to complete a trilogy though in the MCU. But didn't didn't he do all three of us? Oh, Peyton Reed did the. Um, yes, he did ones. all three of those ones coming in to to take over for Medical Right, but that was early on. So yeah, Peyton Reed has done the three Ant Man movies. And did not Watts do all three of his Spider Man films? Yes, that is true. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, so, uh, but I think thing about Peyton Reed is it's always seemed a damn shame to me that Edgar Wright didn't get to do those films. So Edgar Wright said, I wanted to make uh, an Ant-Man film, but Marvel didn't want to make mm. an Edgar Wright film. I think, um, imagine so if Ant-Man had come out after the first Guardians of the Galaxy and the success that James Gunn had being allowed to be quite James Gunny in the MCU they just gone, okay, we'll allow Edgar Wright to do the similar thing in Ant-Man. It would be an interesting how how that would have shifted the 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 tone of the MCU. I used to want to try and get to a here for me is that I look and maybe incorrectly and no game being harsh, but both John Watts and Peyton Reed are not exactly no. auteurs. You know? These are the kind of guys I think Marvel enjoy working with because I don't know a whole lot about them, mm -hmm. to be honest. They don't have a lot of style or substance about what they... They're they, not like they go, oh, they that is a John follow Watts a film. recipe. Exactly. They are. come in, they, they direct yeah. it for hire. Malleable. Whereas James Gunn has a definite style. You can watch your film and go, this is a James Gunn film. And I will be now, what I'm trying to get to is that now that he's leaving Marvel, it's quite a sad thing for Marvel because I don't even Sam Raimi doesn't get to do what he wants to oh, do, you know. What if and you know, he, get, mm -hmm. he does what he's told. Um, whereas maybe James is a lot and Taika were TT were the last two to be able to do whatever the fuck mm -hmm. they wanted, and that didn't really work out so well for Taika last time. Now, um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what he can do with Superman and the rest of the DC universe. And I think the interesting thing for me about DCU now is they have been so bad. They have been laid so low over the last few years that they have to take risks now uh -huh. to get back. And that is going to lead potentially to some disastrous shit that it could have been yeah. brilliant. Marvel takes Exactly. No and DC, DC are kind of in the same position that Nintendo were when they released the Wii U. Of They had an idea and... In a, in a few kind of very narrow I, margins, those are like, oh, that is a good idea. That's an interesting idea. Having a tablet that you can play on the TV or away from, that's kind of cool. But it just didn't work. And then they, so Nintendo had to scramble and they came up with the Switch, which is an unequivocal success. Because they had to think on their feet and get creative. And that's where DC are at right now so we could very well see some interesting new stuff coming through and i'm excited for it but james gunn did um christmas special and this and for both of those i think he was it feels like he was kind of given carte blanche to do what he wanted christmas special was bad absolutely 100 percent bad 
this has so much James Gunn in it. He needs to make sure that he reigns it in. Otherwise, they're cool. He, he did get a little yeah, Otherwise, it's going to be messy and it's just too much James Gunn. And there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Rein it in, tell the story, keep your personality. Um, I think that's a fairly consistent best thing they've done for a while, but still self indulgent and a long way from mm-hmm. perfect. But it sounds like you enjoyed it despite the overall, uh, yeah. I think it was fine. It was like, like you say, it was one of the much better MCU movies of the last 10 years, quite comfortably. Um, the characters still retain the charm and delight that they had from that when they first first made their appearance. The bad guy is delightfully horrible that you enjoy hating and seeing his comeuppance. It is too long. It is playing too much on your emotional heartstrings very overtly, but I can kind of forgive that overall. It was, you know, it, it did what it needed to do. James Gunn delivered and got it across the line, and he just told a story. He told the Guardians of the Galaxy story yeah. rather than to, like, next time in the MCU, and it'll suddenly flash to, I don't know, like spider pig just walking around, something like that. <laughs> it's, it's Should we, should we move getting on? We're lost. getting long. We've got one more film. We're going to have a quick recap of our next very relevant yes. new film in the uh, in the Uther, uh in the zeitgeist that everyone's talking about. Uh, we were out of ideas about what to have as our <laughs> third film this week. So I mentioned I had rewatched this <laughs> recently because it turns out Michelle had never oh. seen it before. And that is more than 40 years. This is a 46-year-old film, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Directed by up and comer nobody who never really happened, never really went anywhere. Steven Spielberg, <laughs> something like that. Spielberg, uh, <laughs> the uh, Mexican, not even <laughs> equivalent. Um, Roy Neary, an Indiana electric lineman, finds his quiet and ordinary life turned upside down after a close encounter with a UFO, spurring him to an obsessed cross-country quest for answers as a momentous event approaches. Yep. Starring famously Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfus. Uh, Francois, I did not know this before I saw this again recently. Francois Truffaut, uh, the famous French oh. film director. Um, oh. Bob Balaban, uh, a very, very, very young Bob Balaban. I don't know, Lance Henriksen yeah. is in it, but there's not a lot of other big names in there you'll remember. Yeah, it is, yeah, years yeah. Ago, so, I and genuinely surprised, I could have sworn that this movie was two hours 45 minutes, <laughs> not. Maybe there was like a director's cut or something, but it is long. It's two hours, 18 minutes. Yeah, it it certainly feels like nearly three hours long. Because this is, this is, this is a methodical, slow boiling to not really boiling point movie. It's like, what, what did, uh, I mean, I, I still kind of like it. It's got a lot of classic things like the do 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 do. That's iconic. Um, uh, Roy making the mountain out of mashed potato. At the- I had to. It's been. It's that's been Godfather to death. Yeah. It's parodied so many times. It's like 
Michelle was like, where do I know this from? I had to pull up the uh, the Simpsons episode where Homer makes the uh, the big top out of mashed potato. And, and you know, it's hard, it's difficult to take those scenes seriously sometimes and they've been yeah. so successfully parodied. But you're right. It's Yeah, and, and there's so many wonderful things that have kind of aged poorly, partly Godfather Syndrome-esque, but also just like the um the the this the, when when the the kid opens the door and there's all the lights and things like that through through it that's been parodied and homaged so much and the the use of stark lighting i feel like this was the first time this was probably an incredibly informative movie to jj abrams considering how much light is prevalent in this damn movie oh crap well we know jj's i think he's a massive spirit yeah, he... fanboy uh what was that film was it eight yeah. millimeter was that eight millimeter was that the one he did where he uh was basically a a love letter yep. to spielberg um and you know like if you're gonna rip somebody sure. off why not no make, mm. make it good i think you're being a little harsh um I kind of still enjoyed it. Um, it is a bit on the slow side. Um, it's interesting to see elements of stuff that mm. came later, like the the uh, the start of a film in the desert where they find mm-hmm. all the ships. Um, that had sort of Indiana Jones mm-hmm. vibes. Uh, four years ahead of time, you can sort of start to see that um, Saturday afternoon matinee adventure story kind of influence starting to creep through there. Um, the elements that later became E.T., the aliens, as opposed to, which yeah. was probably quite revolutionary. I, I'm, I'm not an expert in UFO what? films from the 70s, but... E.T., e. that I think that came out the same year as Alien or something like that, or um, one of the so like horror alien movies. And it was... Alien came out in 1979. E.T. came out in 1982. Okay, yeah. So, the yeah, people were just used to aliens bad largely because aliens quite often i think war of the worlds you know that kind of thing yeah uh it's probably what you're expecting of alien invasion films um but aliens being somewhat benevolent uh was probably quite an original idea at the time yeah i would like to mention the special effects i think they hold up incredibly well looks great still to this day it looks great Maybe the rubber-headed aliens look a little bit silly, but, yeah. you know, you probably, in hindsight, maybe shouldn't have shown them, but it probably looked great in the 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I liked all the references to different things, you know, the, the uh, Bermuda Triangle pilots and stuff coming out, you yeah. know, them finding their planes, you know, intact and stuff like that um, was pretty cool. Um, it, it was written with love, well-written film. It was written by, with love. With someone who had, you know, a, a great deal of time and energy for this kind of thing, it almost felt X Filey. Again, the X Files is probably something that may owe an homage to some some of its, yeah, you know, existence to this film as well. Yeah, yeah, that That's... kind of conspiracy theory ish kind of thing. Uh, you know, the idea of the uh, the government's keeping things from us. In mm. this case, something quite benevolent. Um, but that's hardly an original storyline either. But um, you know, I th- I think that I think there's a lot here that it doesn't. I don't know if it stands the test of time, purely because of 
how mined it has been. And I think it's like to, to use that allegory, it's, it's a mountain the people have just dived into so much that if you start, if you take one more pebble from that mountain, the whole thing's just going to go <laughs> just disappear. I think it depends on how exposed to that you have been. Um, yeah. In the sense of like, you know, uh, how much you've seen in terms of film in the last mm. 40 years, um, how much TV you've seen, that kind of thing. I, I think, uh, I might be talking to school, but you know, having Michelle with me, who'd never seen it before, I think she quite enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> well, thinking it was a bit long, uh, a bit, as you said, methodical. Uh, yep. Could have done with some, some, you know, 15, 20 minutes hacked out of it, as usual. Yep. Um, so it was still happening. Even 46 years ago, it was happening. <laughs> um, you know, but it, uh, it did need that. But I still think it had moments of wonder and and pure excitement of discovery and, you know, uh th that scene at the end the, the famous scene with the, the keyboards and the lights and the, the mothership it just boggles the mind i still think it, it evokes that feeling of wonder to mm. some degree at least for maybe you and i are just too cynical for this world you know but um i i have a fond memory of this because i i remember it was um the movie that i went the first time i ever went to drive through cinema and watching this on that screen, it was kind of cool because because of the lighting of it and all the cars just sitting there, I felt like I was there in that end sequence when the mothership's down because of the, so much light and all of the metal reflecting off the cars and things like that. It added this sense of almost 3D to it, which was kind of cool. Um, and Richard Dreyfuss it delivers a great performance in this as well really he's fantastic um it's a strange story in a lot of ways um the way his family rejects him and uh, basically discards him because he's got yeah. his wacky ideas about ufos and like we don't want to know you anymore you're too fucking weird for us yeah um how uh, if only that were true for QAnon types um <laughs> um and he you know how quickly he takes up with um uh, is it is it Malin, is it Jillian who Jill is also who is a, one of the more um, neglectful parents I've ever seen in the film? He's like a kid would run wild across the freaking field and get abducted by aliens. You know, yeah, no worries, whatever. Um, <laughs> They'll look that, up the room; it's fine. It was it was a strange one how that sort of, sort of you know that well, the the family simply rejected him and moved on mm. with somebody else so quickly. Uh, yeah. I guess the film needed it to happen. Yeah. Uh, I is it, we, we are making it a quick and dirty one for an all-time classic here, but yeah. I, I was glad to go back and experience it again. It's interesting watching this because I, I did, the last time I watched this, um, I did a double bill and I did this and then I went into Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. And it's weird, the, the polar opposites of them, but having so many, like, Steven Spielberg lit, rips so many of his own ideas out of Close Encounters for War of the Worlds and in some ways purposefully twists them. In other ways, he's just being lazy because he's getting old now. Um, and War of the Worlds is not as good as Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, no, it's not. It's easily it's, easily said. Has moments, but no. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was interesting just watching those two together and just going, "Oh yeah, huh." And then it just thinking about it again now and just going, "Yeah." So 
the scary aliens from outer space is what we what came before this and et and it was also an allegory for so like uh communism and things like that coming in the cold war okay i've just been advised michelle yes. i'm misremembering and michelle hated it if it was boring and long and thought the main character was allowed to join the circus so i misremembered i apologize for <laughs> my uh misspeaking um uh, that she she liked this film and apparently it was just me he liked it <laughs> thank you for keeping him honest michelle yes um uh, sometimes it, i sometimes i misremember but anyway i it's it is a long film for for the 70s yeah. and yeah it takes its time to get there Absolutely. I, I i still think if you haven't seen it i would recommend watching it if nothing else from a film history perspective yeah i i would put it more in the film history rather than cinema entertainment shall we say but let's go on to the final portion of our show, shall we? Mm-hmm. Binge browse burn. I want to start off, if that's okay. Of course. I've got a browse soft binge for Apple TV. It came out, I think, today or yesterday. Silo. I have my first choice as well. I have watched the first two episodes. Ah, okay. Look at that. Um, we did not. Just we did not organize this. Everyone who's watched the show knows that we don't organize shit. Yeah. This is the new show um, on Apple TV, starring uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Um, it's got a whole bunch of names that you'll go, oh yeah, I I know them from somewhere. Rebecca Ferguson, who's most currently um, in the Dune series with Denny Villeneuve. And uh, she has been in at least one. I think she's in two of the Mission Impossible movies. Is Ian Glenn, um, TV's older dad, who's still kind of like husky and somewhat sexy. He was in Game of Thrones. Uh, Will Patton. Uh, you've got Tim Robbins making an appearance in the first episode. Rashida Wallace. Yep. Common. Common. <laughs> Uh, David Oyelowo, who I'm, is maybe not a name you'll know, but he's been in stuff. Yep. Um, um, Rashida Jones, uh, you might know from some places. The, uh, the castle, uh, sorry, the office, wasn't it? I think in Parks and Rec. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Parks and Rec. Uh, and she was in Social Network as well, apparently. Um, but this is the synopsis for it, everyone, is men and women live in a giant silo underground with several several regulations which they believe are in place to protect them from the toxic and ruined world on the surface where all the zombies live. Um, that's a piece of disposition that is not in the first two episodes. No. So that's that's a. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, for the spoiler. Apparently, because... well, I mean, I don't know where it's coming from. Like, um, yeah. like is that, is that something Apple's put on there? I, um, I don't know. But, but the, this is this is based on a series of books, so I believe. So maybe yeah, that's where maybe, someone's got maybe. it from. Um, I think the books are written by the creator. Was it Graham Yost? Uh, uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Howie. Sorry, my bad. Oh, um, sorry, yeah, uh, yeah, Hugh Howie, based on so, the book. So maybe it, he's it's in the books. Um, maybe, yeah. First thing I know about this is seriously heavy overwhelming fallout vibes yeah this 
because I saw the I didn't know anything about this TV show until I saw a trailer drop maybe three weeks ago on Apple TV. And I thought, okay, this looks like a proto fallout. I'm curious. And after watching the first episode, it's like, okay, they've done quite well at building a bit of mystery here. And sowing a couple of seeds for for what could come. There's uh, conspiracy theories going on. This is kind of interesting. I wonder if this is the sort of thing they're going to do with the Fallout TV show. If they do. I've said before, I'm very curious to see what they do with this. Yeah. Um, I I like you. I enjoyed the first episode enough to go back Mm -hmm. to the second episode. Yeah. Um, But it's a very strangely structured start to a TV show. Yeah. In the sense that in our first episode, we meet two characters. We meet uh, Rashida Jones and her husband, the sheriff, uh, who is played by, I forget his name again, David uh, Oyelowo, Sheriff Holston. Yep. And look, I think we can reveal what happens in the first episode, right? You've got to go heavy on the spoilers here, but you know, you'll give us the first it's hour of a fight. But Rashida Jones detects a conspiracy going on. No one's allowed to possess information or relics from before a point in the past called the rebellion. Yeah. After discovering some information that looks like it may be from around that time, she begins to question whether or not they're being told the whole truth about why they are in this silo and about what's really outside. So mm-hmm. she demands to go outside. And apparently in this world, if you ask to go outside, you go outside the end of a story. It is, it is the cardinal rule. You don't ask to go outside, but if you do, you go outside. Rogue. And the idea is once you're outside, your job is to clean the sensors, that st- the little video camera mm-hmm. that means that people can see outside. And she dies, at least appears to die, shortly after cleaning mm-hmm. the video camera and sensors. At the end of the episode, uh, Sheriff Holston also demands to go outside. So, spoiler alert, by the end of episode one, Two of our main characters are either dead or about to die. Mm-hmm. And these are the two characters we have, we've just spent the entire episode getting to know mm-hmm. and who have introduced us to this world only to meet the actual protagonist of the show in the last shot of the episode. Mm-hmm. He does not, Juliet Nichols, played by Richard, Rebecca Ferguson, does not have a line in the entire first episode. No. And then we spent probably half of a second episode before she says anything of note, <laughs> which is very interesting. And I'm not sure a particularly wise way of going about it, of introducing your protagonist half, basically we start to get to know her halfway through the second episode. Mm. And, and when you've introduced two characters who've already, and they were good characters, I thought. Yeah. yeah I think between, and then, they are basically gone by the end of the second episode. You're probably not going to see them again. Mm. Um, and I'm like that really detracted for it from it from it for me. Mm. Having not watched the second episode yet, I can't comment on that one. But I do feel like it's probably a tool to get rid of a lot of the exposition and world building out of the way. So and they do a lot of that in the first episode. Yeah, there is a lot. We see elements of Tim Robbins' shady guy in a suit sort of thing or just like yes you posted this we've taken it down that's not not good and so like words and you see a couple of little sequences where what are they calling the protectorate or something uh judicial 
the judicial, thank you, um, that come in to do raids for relics from the before times that are not allowed. And there's a lot of world building around this like mythos. And they generally do quite a good job of it not being so overly heavy because they focus so much on just these two individual characters and their relationship and how one is more open to taking on these potential conspiracy theories. This is one who is the sheriff and has to kind of abide by the rules. And there's a line that he says where um, I took an oath. What uh, an oath is worth nothing. If it's, um, if you can change, if you can hold it for one, not for another. And that was, that was a good line. And the scene where he kind of reads the final verses to his wife, who's just about to be taken out the airlock is he, delivers that line really well and it informs you of what kind of a world you're probably living in it and i think if you want if you were going to add in the main character as well so like ooh, that's a lot so well, I, I don't understand why you just wouldn't start with a main character like start with two fringe characters who you're never going to see again mm. and you spend i spend an hour of my time getting to know this world through the eyes of two characters who don't matter. Mm. Like you've got, uh, it's a written, so usually these things are a limited series. I'm guessing what, like eight, nine, 10 episodes or something like that. Um, this is apparently how many, sorry, 10 episodes for this so one. So you've just wasted one tenth of your time on the screen on mm. building characters. I don't get to see again. Yeah. Barely ever get to see again, who are now just mentioned by other characters. Yeah. Um, Including one of the biggest, the probably the biggest name in the show. Everyone's going to know Rashida Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did not recognize Rachel Ferguson. Um, Rebecca. Uh, sorry, Rebecca Ferguson. I <laughs> now I vaguely remember from June, but I've tried to black that film out of my memory. Um, you bastard. All right, look, I'm going to go. June 2. Have, I, yeah, great. Um, uh, I'll, 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 I'll bring the no dos. Um, I am. Um, I liked it enough i am curious enough mm-hmm. to go back for a third episode whenever that comes i assume next week um uh, yes. yes it it does take for me some missteps in the second episode where mm-hmm. i start to get i've said about this before but is this going to be another lost or another wayward pines remember wayward pines yeah like where you're like first like half thirds like the, the, the two thirds of the first thing you're like this is fucking incredible yeah then you get to the end and you're like really well that's that, what this was that's the thing so many so many of these shows have great premise and they set up and then then they and you kind of build it and build it and build it and then it gets to the turn and suddenly you go oh Oh, oh, it's 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 like uh, having an online dating chat with someone who's used nothing but filters, and then you meet them for the first time, and they're a pizza in a dress, and like, oh, um, well, they look like me, you know, like you know, um, I mean, that, that's you know, um, suave. Yes, of course, but depends if, if this is not what you're expecting. If you get rid of the filters, you know, um, <laughs> I um. There are points in this that kind of remind me a little bit of Wayward Pines, um, you know, uh, where like they've been living in this silo for hundreds of years, 
Mm. And they still have fresh food all the time and everything. They've got computers that still work, but they have some, some form of the internet, but they don't have telephones. You know, yeah. like, um, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, how do computers work for hundreds of years? They don't. They wear out. Do you have, like, shit? How many spare parts do you have? Like, uh, you know, um, and you know, when you stopped and thought about how Wayward Pines supposed premise was supposed to work, it didn't make any sense either. No. No. Uh, and I, I wonder if this will make sense in the end. But I am curious I enough, to, and I like the aesthetic, yes. that I will watch another episode or two and see mm. if they start to really get somewhere interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the yeah, one it kind of is giving me vibes of is Logan's Run. The movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. So you remember the one that I think would be quite a good limited series as well. There's been for years they were talking about remaking that. Michael Bay was going to do a remake, you know. Uh, there was also uh, another director that uh, has fallen out of grace, um, Brian Singer. That was one of his passion projects. And I think it's still kicking around. Probably, probably I'm going to Jordan Peele now because he gets all the stuff that everybody else is, was going <laughs> to do. But um, if it's a, you know, it's, it's an interesting story and the idea of it, like what's outside mm. isn't what we're always told. Is kind of that is this, mm. seems to be the kind of the idea behind this, this show, and of course that was um, famously what Logan's Run was about. Apparently, currently, currently Logan's Run, it's in development, uh, written by Ryan J. Condal and three other writers. So Simon Kinberg, he of course, of the man who directed uh, the last two X Men film. Mm -hmm. Perfect example of failing upwards. The guy's a decent writer and producer. Apparently, everybody likes working with him, but he is not a good director. No, he is um, not. Uh, one other one I'd like to quickly talk about from my perspective, and I'm going to put this in the soft binge category. Yeah. Um, that is Succession. I think I talked about what yeah, the first episode, yeah. and now we are at episode seven of mm. the last season, uh, the famous last season. Um, I don't know how many. I think. I think I could spoil a little bit because there's a fairly big thing happened in like episode two or three this season. Okay. And um, uh, and if you are not up to date with this season of Succession, if you're not watching it and you've somehow managed to avoid spoilers for the last month, uh, good on you, but I'm going to spoil it for you now. Uh, Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, dies very early on this season. Uh, and, of course, he is kind of... The center of this universe in the sense he's mm. for a Rupert Murdoch character. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so episode three, he passes away. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's very low key. It's just, it kind of happens off screen mostly. Um, mm -hmm. And that episode, uh, I, I, I'm i in a funny place with Succession in the sense that I, I haven't watched all the rest of it. Um, I, I actually couldn't be bothered watching three seasons before trying to get into this season. Uh, so I just watched a couple of catch-up videos on YouTube to tell me what had happened and who everybody was. Um, and so I don't have a super abiding attachment to these characters that mm. everybody else does. Okay. Um, but I could tell straight away that Logan was the most interesting character in the show. Mm -hmm. um, and now the he has been removed from the picture. There's this incredible power vacuum going on between people who are left, okay. uh, including his children, uh, including he was in the process of selling his company to a Norwegian uh, tech entrepreneur played by Bill Skarsgård, who is outstanding in this. He is on 
fucking fire right now, Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> um, and I guess more normally the old guard, the old executives of, mm. of the company. And um, I'm going to cop shit for this, but I think it's been kind of treading water a little bit since then. Uh, okay. If you look at if you look at the ratings, the ratings are as consistently high. And interestingly, the episode where he dies, it has a 9.9 on IMDb. Wow. Um, the others are low high eights, low nines. And maybe it's just in a situation where I'm like, nah, I'm really not fussed about who wins this fight because I don't have, you know, hundreds of hours of, you know, there's hours of free seasons of TV. Uh, I just watched the half hour catch up. Mm. Um, so, but my goodness, it's well written. Um, yeah. And the acting is is phenomenal. Um, it's uh, they're all doing the best work of their careers. Sarah Snook, uh, Rory, um, Rory Culkin, and uh, Nicholas Brown uh, is in there as, as uh, cousin Craig. But um, who am I looking for here? Uh, Alan Rock does. I mean, Jeremy Strong is the one I'm looking for here. Mm. Um, there's the there's the so Jeremy Strong, Sarah Snook, and Rory, Kieran Culkin. Sorry, mm. uh, not Rory, Ron Culkin, um, and. They are all doing the best work of their careers as the three kids. Mm. Brian Cox was you know, amazing as it was. Yeah. Um, but look, if you are not on board with this show yet, like I wasn't, you thought, like watching an episode, but not for me. Yeah. Um, and you're looking for something to binge, this is worth a look. Okay. And this is um, written and created by Jesse Armstrong, who did In the Loop and Four Lions. So, Four yeah. Lions, one of the funniest movies ever made. Yes, it's fantastic. Um, I don't have anything else to talk about for Binge Browse Burn, but um, next week I will be giving my early thoughts on Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which comes out this week. I'm looking forward to it. Gonna make some crazy shit. I, uh, you know, it's gonna be good. It's always good. Nintendo don't miss, they don't, good. They don't miss that shit, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, I won't be playing Tears of the Kingdom because. I barely, I think I played two hours of uh, Breath of the Wild. That's because you, you like, like I said, you, you're a cold, heartless man. <laughs> it's, it, it was fine. And, and in fairness, it was on a plane. So, not exactly the best place to be playing video games. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. Do you have? I, I, I don't. I think it's a pretty no. good time to wrap it up. We're a little yeah. over our 90 minute mark, but we've done okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. If you watched along live um, or if you catch us up later on on podcast services around the globe, we were talking about Leon the Professional as our chain movie. Travis, you have chosen Talk Radio as our next uh, next stop. We talked about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the hot new movie that everyone's talking about, and Binge Browse Burn with Silo and Succession. Next week, we are going to be having talk radio and we will come up with two other movies as well as some binge browse burn for everyone. Until then, thank you very much. Good night. Farewell. <laughs>